My name is Anna Orberry. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Well, hello and welcome to episode three of The Climate Briefing from Chatham House. I'm Ben Horton. I'm joined by my colleague Anna. Hey, Anna, how's it going? Hello. It's uh, all good. It's, it's quiet. It's solitary. We're not in the Chatham House Media Studio that we have come to love in our early episodes, but we are in our respective homes, as I'm sure all of you listeners are, because we're in lockdown. Anna, how's that been for you? I mean, as I said, I'm fine at a personal level, but I guess it is very worrying about what is going on in the world. And um, I guess I'm just trying to keep as busy as possible. Well, it's good that you're busy. We're going to keep busy with this podcast series as well, because we're not going to be stopping, fortunately regardless of the lockdown that's happening in the UK right now. And we're also not going to be interrupted by the fact that the COP process itself has been postponed. Obviously, many of you will know, listeners, that the COP conference that was due to happen in Glasgow in November 2020 has actually been postponed now until 2021. But we will be continuing with this podcast series regardless and bringing you more insight into the climate agenda So Anna, we've been continuing the event series, the diplomatic briefing series as well, that's running alongside this. Can you tell us a bit about how you're managing that? Yeah, so today we actually hosted the third event in the series, uh, which was about climate change and national security. But because of the COVID-19 situation, we did it as a virtual conference and it actually went really well. Uh, We had lots of diplomats, lots of uh, UK government officials uh, attending, which was really encouraging. So that is, uh, we're going to go ahead with that format now until the situation has improved and we're able to convene normal uh, events again. Absolutely. So national security and climate change, what was the thinking behind bringing that theme in now? What does it involve? So I'll leave it to our um, podcast interviewees to go into the uh, specifics. But basically what we wanted to do during the event was to take a bit of a deep dive into what the relationship between climate change and national security really looks like. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it at the UN Security Council within lots of governments, but uh, sometimes these things, uh, you start thinking, okay, but what does that actually mean? So we wanted to... um, take a deep dive into that and also to look at what governments can do concretely to respond to the threat. And uh, we had a great panel. We had uh, Rear Admiral Neil uh, Morissetti, who we're going to be talking to uh, in this podcast as well. And he's currently Vice Dean at the Faculty of Engineering Sciences at uh, UCL and an Associate Fellow at Chatham House. But he has a really long career behind him from the FCO and the Royal Navy. So he's a really the right person to talk to when it concerns this topic. And then we had uh, Dr. Jakob Mulugeta, who is a professor of energy and development policy at UCL as well. And Lieutenant General Richard Nuji, who is departmental lead for climate change and sustainability at the UK Ministry of Defence. And then finally, Dr. Patricia Lewis, who is research director for conflict science and Technology and Director of International Security of the International Security Programme here at Chatham House, who we also have the privilege of having on this podcast today. So I think it was a really great discussion, lots of interesting insights. And again, it kind of really underscored the urgency of both kind of understanding 
the risks that climate change poses national security and the need for the security community to take it on in their analysis and their planning. But not least, it also underscored how urgent it is that we reduce emissions and curb climate change once again. We should say at this point that obviously this podcast is dependent on technology and internet connections and occasionally the sound quality might be a bit dodgy, but stick with it because the content is super interesting. Hope you enjoy it. So I'm here with Rear Admiral Neil Morissetti, who's an Associate Fellow here at Chatham House and also Vice Dean for Public Policy at the Faculty of Engineering Sciences at the University College London. Great to have you here, Neil. Thank you very much for talking to us. So I thought we'd start with the basics. How does climate change actually impact national security? We're all, I think, aware of a changing climate, whether it's the onset of rising temperatures or extreme weather events, prolonged droughts, prolonged heat waves, or the other extreme uh, prolonged wet periods. And that that has environmental impact, it has social impact, it impacts on people's health. But increasingly, we're now understanding as well that as a result of the second and third order consequences of a changing climate, in other words, because of those rising temperatures or because of those extreme weather events, particularly where they impact on the availability of key natural resources like food, water or land, people are losing their livelihoods, maybe a fishing community and increased acidity because of the rising temperatures means the fish are moving away or the stocks are depleted, or they're farmers in a low-lying uh, coastal belt and there's been an ingress of salt water into the um, aquifers which has destroyed the farming land or their homes are disappearing because of um, erosion or flooding or whatever but that can contribute to the stresses in society and often the countries where this is happening today are those parts of the world where stress already exists it might be as a result of food shortages it might be water shortages it could be population growth particularly in africa alternatively it could be just demographics it could be increased demand on resources or so many historical challenges. And frequently, these things happen in countries where the governments don't necessarily have the capacity and resilience to look after their systems on the face of these stresses. So that, we're adding the impact of a changing climate. And the effects are principally being felt today in a belt around the equator, again, where some of these vulnerable countries are. And it's increasing the risks of instability and conflict in those areas, either because of competition for resources, movement of populations, in some cases trapped populations, which mean that they are, in the absence of a livelihood or a home, they are perhaps susceptible to being recruited into organised crime or in extremities into some violent extremist organisations. We live in a joined up world, which means that all of these physical changes may be happening thousands of miles away from us. If they pose a threat to our geopolitical stability, that in itself isn't an end state. It's a prerequisite for sustained economic growth, prosperity and well-being. For a number of years, there were some doubt as to the links I've just described. And we should be quite clear that it's unlikely that climate change on its own is going to be a direct cause of conflict. But as a threat multiplier, we have seen that happening. Uh, we've seen it happening as a contributing factor to the Arab Spring and what's happened in Syria. And as we look ahead, perhaps, to somewhere like the Sahel region, which is a very vulnerable, very agrarian community, the signs are there again. And the UN Security Council is one of the organisations that have been focusing on that part of the world. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the developments within the Security Council? How has the climate security agenda risen in the Security Council, obviously, as the UN was set up after the Second World War, perhaps a more traditional threats to the world's prosperity and well-being. 
for many years. But beginning of this century, in about 2007, the then UK Foreign Secretary Margaret Beckett took the subject of security implications of a changing climate to the Security Council. The response wasn't that positive. Many people felt that this was not Security Council business. It either sat in the General Assembly or perhaps under the United Nations Framework for Climate Change Convention, the UNFCCC, or the COP process. But we've persevered, and as people's understanding has grown, and different nations, whether they are permanent five members or uh, rotating through the Security Council, have included the subject during their presidencies. And increasingly now, we are recognising that this is a real threat, amongst many other threats, to our prosperity and well-being. And therefore, it's right the Security Council focuses on it, draws people's attention to it, and encourages action to reduce the risk posed by a changing climate. And countries tend to listen to what the Security Council says. I think there's a challenge in the sense that there are many things going on in the world today which take the attention of both public and perhaps, more importantly, our elected representatives. But the evidence that we are seeing, the visual evidence of a changing climate, especially from extreme weather events, is focusing people's minds and they are now starting to listen to what the Security Council has to say on this subject and many other organisations and institutions. Great. Thank you very much. So I was thinking that we'd talk a little bit about what governments can actually do to address this threat. In your view, what are the most important and concrete measures that can be undertaken by governments and other stakeholders? Climate change is a challenge for governments because, unlike other drivers of instability, it impacts countries across multiple routes simultaneously. But at the same time, with so many other things going on in our countries, our elected representatives are kept very busy and are are challenged by what they're facing. It is easy, therefore, to look at only the immediate things, the things that are happening in the short term. For some countries, climate change is is happening now and is a very real issue. For others, it's longer term and there's a temptation to put it off for another day. When in reality, we need to be more strategic and think long term in how we address it. And the first thing we have to acknowledge is not only is the climate changing and it's changing through an onset of long term trends, but also through extreme weather events. And it's impacting on all of us. It's a global issue. It doesn't recognise national boundaries. The consequences of physical changes in some parts of the world are felt many thousands of miles away. So having accepted we've got a problem, we've got to understand what the problem is. And in the security context, it's important to understand what are the drivers and where are the indicators of these drivers starting to have effect? In the past, we've been very good in historically in like state-on-state conflicts and being able to monitor what countries are doing and then um, take action on the basis of that. Climate change is different in the sense it's a new set of parameters we have to look at. We have to look at what's happening with the wet, long-term weather forecasts, what's happening to um, yields of key crops, rice, wheat, and others, and what's happening to the prices of it. We need to see what's happening to populations. Are they moving? Are they moving in a fashion which we don't normally see through historical patterns, or is it is it is it something new? And we need to start to look at how all of this is impacting on societies which are vulnerable and don't necessarily have the capacity to, to, to meet the challenges in order we get an indication of what is happening, where it's happening, and then how we can we then have to decide how this fits in with all the other stresses and threats we face. So we do our national security analysis, we have to include the impact of changing climate just as much as issues of state-on-state tension or other uh, non-traditional transboundary risks such as organised crime and, and cyber threats. Having completed that and determined where our priorities are, then the approach is perhaps different from what we did in the last century in the sense that this 21st century challenge requires a 21st century solution and it's got to be delivered through a 21st century process, one which involves all of society 
Governments can help set frameworks for action, whether it's in adaptation or mitigation. But at the end of the day, it's society as a whole, whether it be from the commercial and business community or from civil society and individuals, action is required if we're going to reduce the risk to the point at which they're manageable. And therefore, we can cope with this threat along with many other challenges to our prosperity and well-being. You used to work for the UK government. How good is the UK government at addressing climate-related security risks, in your view? The UK has got a good track record in the sense that we raised the issue of the impact of a changing climate as a security threat first in 2007 at the UN Security Council, but also in 2008 because we passed the Climate Change Act, which was across the House from all parties supported, and that sets us targets to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Last year, we were the first G7 nation to commit to net zero by 2050. The challenge, of course, is maintaining and meeting those commitments when there's so many other things going on. And we're recording this at a time when uh, the whole world is locked down while we face the challenges of the pandemic COVID-19. And when we come out of that, there is going to be a desire to address some of the economic implications that that we've followed on from, from the losses to our economies. It's important at times like that that we look not only to, to restore our economy, but we do so in a fashion which doesn't damage the environment and reduces the risk posed by climate change. And in fact, recently, the UK Climate Change Committee has indicated that it's pausing its work for, 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 for its next report to ensure that it is making recommendations that we work for a low-carbon, clean tech recovery rather than a more traditional one. So what implications may the postponement of the COP have? I think it would be a big ask for a country to host a COP at the end of this year, when the member states of the United Nations, 196 countries, have all been heavily focused on other issues. And it's an important COP because we have to review our positions and those we agreed in Paris in 2015. So a delay is appropriate, but we've got to use that time sensibly. We've got to use that time to understand where we are, to build a commitment to rebuild our economies in a low carbon, clean tech fashion and to work with what we've gained from society over these last few months where people recognizing a that if you muck about the environment you start to cause problems but also that people are prepared to work at the local and the regional level where many of the solutions lie to what is a global problem. So we've talked a little bit about the UK. I I was interested in uh, developing countries. Has the climate and security agenda risen in salience in other parts of the world as well? To varying degrees, yes. I mean, a piece of work was done by a think tank in Washington, ASP, American Security Project, three or four years ago, to look at how many countries have looked at the impact of climate change as a security issue. And it was over 50%. And, and as I said, that's three or four years ago. So it's, the numbers have grown since. The challenge is a capacity in, those, in some countries to, to address these things, but also a concern that perhaps the language being used implies a securitization of the issue and even a militarization of of the issue of climate change, when in reality, A, there is no hard security solution to climate change, just the risk of greater insecurity if you don't act. Also, it's not one where there is a specific, or rather a lead role for the military. The military have a part to play, they have a part to play both in the sense of helping build capacity and resilience, addressing the consequences of extreme weather events, perhaps through humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, and also playing their part in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions from mitigation. Again, they can help in the in that sort of analysis of the threats and the challenges that I've described before, which is day-to-day bread and butter work for security organisations. Some co- small countries have done a phenomenal amount of work. I mean, New Zealand has done a very good analysis of what it means for their part of the world and what needs to be done. And that was led by the security community. 
Uh, I'm thinking looking ahead. What do you see as the greatest climate-related security risks or threats coming up? I think the greatest threat is that if we don't act and we start to see, principally through extreme weather events and increased temperatures, loss of food or resources and an imbalance in water availability, we will see increased tension. We will see large displaced populations which can only play into the narrative and the agenda of those who perceive this as a threat. And there is a danger that the social costs of this will be such that it will result in the collapse of nations, vulnerable nations, and then a much heavier burden on the rest of the world to address. Whereas if we actually look at today and say, how can we help build capacity and resilience in those countries which are threatened most today by the impact of changing climate, and then work on that basis, drawing on skills and technology that is available, in, particularly in the developed world, then not only will we, will we save those communities from, from the very worst impact of a changing climate, but we will also benefit our own societies by virtue of the fact that the cost to our society will be less in the long term. Ultimately, we have to get to net zero, and we have to get there by 2050, ideally earlier than that if we can, perhaps 2040. My final point really is that it's not all gloom. There are some real opportunities if we act to reduce the risk posed by a changing climate. There are opportunities through our adaptation as we increase the strengths and capacity of other nations to look after themselves and are less demanding on the rest of the world, but also through our mitigation action as we drive down our greenhouse gas emissions. We get better air qualities, we get better health, less respiratory issues, we get less issues from... Um, movement of diseases around the world. At the same time, if we're using uh, energy we generate ourselves and sustainable through um, renewable sources, our prices remain stable, so our, so our economic baseline is, is more stable and there's less likely to be a disruption of our trade and, and business. Thank you very much for these interesting insights, Neil. Great to talk to you. And yeah. it's a pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined by Patricia Lewis. Patricia is the Research Director for Conflict Science and Transformation and Director of International Security at Chatham House. And she was one of the panellists at our recent briefing event from EER on climate change and security. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks a lot. I just thought I would begin, we're going to be talking today a bit about the challenges of incorporating climate change and climate risk into defence planning and all of the debates around how we should be thinking about climate change as a matter of security. But I thought I would just begin by asking, how is the security establishment thinking about climate change at the moment? Are they mirroring the kind of general shift in society to thinking that this is more of an issue? Or is there still a lot of work to be done in terms of bringing it into their focus? I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I would say it's mixed. So there would be some people, particularly younger people in the defence establishment or in, you know, in the wider defence industry, if you like, which includes think tanks, but it also includes military and also includes you know, government circles and so on. Mm -hmm. And I would say that obviously a lot of it's about geography and politics. It's also about where you've been trained, where you've done your education, 
mm-hmm. and how broadly you think about these issues. But we know that, you know, for, say, for example, in the United States, there have been some very important uh, senior figures talking about this, even though they might not find themselves in a situation where some of the political class will listen because they some of them might be in denial about this situation. Mm. Uh, nonetheless, they have been getting on ahead and doing work mm. in trying to prepare for some of the worst possible effects of climate change and think it through. And I would say we're seeing more and more of that in the young military mm-hmm. um, all over the world. And of course, if you are a, a young military officer in an island country, in a, a low-lying island state or in a, a country which already has a lot of environmental difficulties, then you're thinking about it a lot. It's probably your number one concern. And then others, I would say, would, would have it amongst a, a basket of concerns. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's a mixed picture. I think where we're seeing less of the work being done, which is unusual, is in the think tanks. Um, there are some think tanks that have been focusing on this, but it's been quite hard to get the funding to do the work. I don't think it's because people don't recognise it as a threat. And I don't think it's because it isn't considered important by researchers. And certainly in the universities, you know, this is a growing field. But it's more the way that think tanks are funded. It's been quite hard to get that buy-in from some of the, the big funders. I'd like to talk more in a, in a second about the idea of climate as a risk, as something that needs to be brought into this. But I just wondered as well, thinking about how the defence establishment is understanding this problem, are they also beginning to think in terms of their own impact on the environment as well? Is that something that we're beginning to see uh, in terms of carbon footprints of military organisations? And Yes, yeah, so you do get military reports uh, mentioning how they have reduced their carbon footprint. You do have sort of virtue signalling in some ways for, for it. You know, you know, we've done... <laughs> X amount of efficiency reductions in in our carbon usage and things like that. So I would say it's there. I wouldn't say it's a driving factor there. So what what would change that, obviously, would be if there was a massive shift in the way in which the whole world uses vehicles and transport uh, for all of the logistics that they have to carry out and have to carry out often at speed. So until we actually address carbon fuels and provide the sorts of alternatives that they would need and make that a level playing field for everyone, that's a very big issue. You don't want your great virtue in reducing carbon footprint to be the thing that means that your neighbouring country will decide to invade you because you've suddenly become much slower. So I think that's one of the big problems they face in trying to address that issue. I suppose now thinking more about climate change itself and the effects of climate change, what are, as you see it, the kind of major threats that that poses to the military and to defence organisations? So I think in the bigger picture, the impact of climate change that has been modelled and that we're seeing start to unfurl is a driver for the sort of instability that can create conflict. I think that's, I would say, the main issue. So people who then have to uh, move from where they live and migrate and then move into areas where they may not be welcome or move into areas which can't cope with the increased numbers, then you start to get all sorts of tensions build up, conflict builds up. Now, if that's handled well, that need not 
result in violent conflict. But as we know, many countries don't handle this very well. And it often does lead to increased tension, increased competition for resources, and unfortunately to, to violence. And over time, that can build up. And if, it, if you import that sort of added stress into an area which already is in conflict, then it would have the tendency normally to exacerbate that situation. We can see how you can prevent it, of course, but we have learned that countries are very poor generally at thinking about preventing conflict. And they find it very hard to measure how to prevent conflict and what to put in place. So this is probably the biggest concern. There are other concerns too, in terms of things like military operations. Obviously, as coastlines change, as storage depots might suddenly find themselves in a hurricane path or whatever, all those sorts of things are being taken into account in planning in many of the militaries around the world. And again, depending on how much at risk they feel. I would say it's now a line item on the risk register for for many countries. You spoke there about the challenges involved in in conflict prevention and the fact that climate change being seen as a kind of cause of conflict is is possibly a reason why it's difficult to integrate it into defence planning. I just wondered, what are the other reasons maybe that that climate change is, is difficult to build into the development of military strategies? So I wouldn't say that Climate change is necessarily seen as a cause of conflict, but more, more of an exacerbator or a trigger. That, that I think is important. It may be a cause of conflict. I don't think we've seen evidence of that yet. I think some of the other problems that countries face are obviously competing priorities. As we really, I think all of us understand that the needs of today tend to trump the needs of tomorrow. And, and you can argue And I would argue that that has been one of the things that has helped the human species to do so well. There's little point in thinking about tomorrow if you're going to starve today, right? So you do have to take care of today. And that's really true in security and defense thinking. You know, it's pointless having wonderful strategies for climate change, impacts, it's, you know, and all of the other big risks if suddenly you find yourself invaded. All of that has to go out the window. And for many regions, that's a a reality that they have to think about all the time. So it's about competing priorities. And competing priorities are then, of course, about resources. And where do you allocate your resources and how do you spread over the resources you have? And resources in this case, you know, is obviously money and people, equipment. And the other thing about defence equipment is... The, the type of equipment that most of the big militaries buy, it takes a long time to develop. It's a big problem we have generally. And we end up with equipment that is probably obsolete by the time it comes into service <laughs> a lot of the time. But it does mean that if you're thinking ahead and you're thinking about perhaps, you know, different types of risks and becoming more agile in your response to them, perhaps developing resilience models starting to do preparedness, training and things like that, that you might not have the right equipment Mm. and you might not be able to get the political buy-in to those risks to purchase that equipment and and start to develop it early enough on. So that's I I think there's some of the the big constraints that defence planners, military planners are facing. We've been speaking up till now, thinking in terms of 
defence planners in specific militaries or specific national government settings. I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about international organisations and the work that they are doing in understanding climate change as a security risk. Is there much work being done at that level? There is. I mean, I think the United Nations obviously has taken this on. It's difficult at the UN because, particularly at the Security Council, you have some very large countries who can block progress and have indeed done so. And some of those countries have, let's say, been a bit slow in the uptake on this issue, depending which government's in charge, etc. But it's not easy at the international level. But in the UN organisation and the secretariat and the specialised agencies, Mm -hmm. this is taken very seriously. And a lot of thinking is going on about that. And there aren't many mechanisms for combining security and climate change or conflict and climate change. But there are ways that the UN has particularly of integrating these issues into the rest of their work. It's called mainstreaming as a a process. And the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and what's called the Agenda 2030, it has been able to do this. Um, Very cleverly. And um, the SDGs are one of the smartest mechanisms that the UN has set up to integrate so many complex issues together, um, develop ways in which you can measure progress. It's not perfect by any means, but it's a real way of trying to see how, how the initiatives that you're taking are actually having some effect. And also not just doing everything in stovepipes. And so I would say that the SDGs are probably the single most important framework to connect up sustainability, conflict, prevention, human rights, health, equality and diversity, and all of the other you know, peaceful and thriving societies approach mm-hmm. that the UN has taken. All countries adopted the SDGs, so that's mm-hmm. important. Most countries have found ways to integrate the SDGs into their own national planning frameworks. So the UK, for example, every single department in the government has to report on its implementation of the SDGs. So it's a really good mechanism, again, for monitoring progress, for making sure that these issues are incorporated into the tactical and strategic work of each of the departments in government. So that's the the United Nations picture. Have we also seen similar attempts by the more regional organisations? Yes, I think so. I think, again, a lot of this is about you know, where you are geographically. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a region which has been very badly affected and will be even more badly affected going forward by extreme weather events, flooding, salination, desertification, etc., then yes, this is a big issue in that region. And it's a, an issue not just for the countries affected, but the whole regional economy. So it is being discussed at these regional forums, not necessarily, though, the link to security as such, but it's, it's permeating through all of their discussions because it is a major issue. So I think that it will inform all of their security planning and thinking. It, it can't even, at the, you know, at the level of, for example, peacekeeping. The organisation that's really taken this very seriously, 
because if you if you look at the spread of the geography of the, of the members is the Commonwealth. They've done a huge amount on things like the Pacific Island states, the low-level island states who, as you know, are really suffering. They're probably the front line of, of what's going on in terms of sea level rises, in terms of extreme weather events and so on. And Unconnected, you can also add in other um, natural disasters like earthquakes and volcanic eruptions. And so, they, you know, they, they have a lot to contend with. They are heavily dependent on neighbours, their imports, and uh, some of them are in a really dire situations when it comes to climate change. So the Commonwealth has taken up this issue quite a bit. And they are increasingly acting as a force within the United Nations, I would say. I think that's a very interesting organisation to watch in this respect. The other organisation, of course, yeah. regionally, that is concerned with the issue enormously, but is also investing a lot in trying to prevent climate change itself, or at least you know, reduce its impact, but also mitigate its impacts, mm-hmm. uh, is, of course, the European Union taking this very seriously, investing in many technologies that will really help, trying to support poorer countries that will be badly affected. And I think it's really important to acknowledge you know, how much of the work that's been done on this is being done by the EU. They've also done quite a lot of uh, very interesting, uh, groundbreaking work on the connection between security and conflict oh. and have funded a lot of the, the big studies and are continuing to do so. Before we finish, I wanted to ask, are NATO doing? Yeah, um, NATO does. NATO does take this uh, issue very seriously. It, it's it's difficult again, a bit like the the UN. You know, there's there's some big states in there, and mm. uh, it's one of those at the moment is 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 dragging its feet on this topic. But again, NATO is very influenced by the military, and the military who do take it seriously are having a lot of influence within NATO. Mm. It just seems like, particularly with the Arctic context. It feels like something that NATO ought to be quite involved with. Yes, well, NATO is doing quite a lot of work, and also, as you know, you know the Arctic Council and so mm. on. But you know, the Arctic, as you well know, is is seen as a potential for conflict uh, between some big powers, but it's also seen as a major opportunity for some of those big powers. And some of the countries within NATO, Canada, Norway, you know, spring to mind, Denmark, are really working hard to try to maximise the opportunities and minimise the potential for conflict. Patricia, thanks so much for joining us today. I just have one final question that we wanted to ask you, which we also asked our other guest on this episode. It's a trick um, question. It's not a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. It's just one of those impossible to answer questions. Into the world, obviously, we're looking at this at the moment from a, a context of undergoing lockdown to deal with an unprecedented pandemic. But looking ahead, thinking about security risks and secure, specific security threats, what do you see as the most significant climate-related security threat? What area should we be paying more attention to with climate in mind? So I think this is, this is a very difficult question because... Um, <laughs> That you know, I think many areas in the world are potential for flashpoints. I mean, the Middle East obviously springs to mind. You have a region heavily embroiled in conflict. You have a situation where many migrants pass through there and often get stuck there on their way, you know, to Europe, for example. And so, I think the Middle East has a very difficult situation. It has its own climate change problems, particularly over water resources, etc. 
So that's one area which I would see a, a climate change being a major exacerbator in, in the future. One that we probably need to look more at would be South Asia. That's, you know, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Pakistan. Mm. And, you know, we, we know where there are some very big problems in the north of India, between Pakistan and India, but also in other parts uh, where they join in terms of water resources. And that's been going on for a long time. And then we have major problems with water as it goes through many of the rivers, the big rivers and, and down, where you know, people are being denied um, fresh, clean water due to what's happening um, further upstream. Mm. So I think all of those issues are there. And then you'll see, you know, that it's an area which often has extreme weather events, cyclones and so on. So I think we're likely to see problems. Whether they would result in major conflict, it's hard to know. But as time goes on, you could see how it could be, again, an exacerbator factor. And then, of course, you know, if you look at Latin America, the Caribbean, and through to on the Pacific side, some parts of the of the Southern Pacific, you can see how. I don't know if that's so much about conflict, but human security and how it, it will affect the ways in which people live their lives. If we could make the connection as well to the COVID nineteen pandemic, what we've learnt through this, which we've learnt before human beings need to learn lessons more than once. And what we've learned is that we really do need to be very prepared with some basic stuff for crises. And I think if there's, if there are things we can do is to, to think things through, to game things, to simulate possibilities, look at crises and try to plan for a range of eventualities, depending on your risk registers, and then make sure that you actually have all those things in place and you don't forget about it, that you keep up the, the constant training, the constant pre-positioning of supplies and that you're constantly aware of the risks involved. And this is something that human beings are very bad at doing. It takes us back to the beginning of the discussion where you know, the, the concerns of today tend to trump the concerns of tomorrow. But we do need to keep on thinking about how we might help prevent the worst of what can happen to us. Thank you very much, Patricia. We are going to leave it there. Patricia Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. No, pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Ben. Well, thanks a lot for listening. We'll be back soon. The next episode will be about climate finance. And it's uh, highly possible that we will also release a bonus episode before the climate finance episode comes out. Very exciting. If you are struggling for climate change related content, then we have enormous amounts of content, not just podcasts, but also video and expert comments and written pieces and research on our website, which is chathamhouse.org. You can also keep up with the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme at Chatham House on Twitter at ch underscore environment. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I would highly recommend that you go back and listen to our previous two episodes they're available on our website they're also on itunes and spotify and many of the other platforms that you can get podcasts on so we hope you stay safe and healthy and we will be back with you in a few weeks Mm -hmm.